0: Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here. Um, Dave asked me if i just share real quickly a couple of things about what organization does. And I just want to say, first of all, Dave, it's amazing. It's actually been three and a half years that I've I had the privilege of being a part of Eldersley in the youth ministry department. And that has been an incredible privilege. Uh, y- you know, when we got started, it was well before the pandemic. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. But um, our time here at Eldersley actually gave us some new vision for things that we should do. So as an organization, we do conferences across the country for encouraging and equipping youth workers to better disciple kids next week. That's what we did pre-pandemic. We haven't done much of that uh, since in the last couple of years uh, other than online. We've done a few conferences online. We also do digital resources. So we have a podcast that about 700 youth workers download every week. And, uh, and it's funny, we just had, we had youth workers from, oh, man, where I think it was from Iraq, actually, that started downloading. The podcast And I was like, oh, I just don't feel like we contextualize well to Iraq, But, you know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll wrestle with that just a little bit. But it's fascinating to me. Um, we also do research. So you'll often hear me talk about different research projects we're a part of when, we've, when I've been preaching and in the past. And I'll reference another one this morning. Um, and then we run a two-year uh, school for training vocational youth workers in partnership with a number of other institutions. So you can get your master's or your BA from it. Both Conrad and Abby are currently doing their master's program with us in our Coalition for Youth Ministry Excellence, and this uh, next year, we're going to launch a new satellite in Ontario. So we have one in Kelowna, we have one in Atlantic Canada, we'll launch in Ontario, and our goal is in the next couple of years that we'll move into the U.S. and start launching there as well, but then we also do ministry design. So when we came to Ellerslie, uh, we just found this to be really fulfilling work for us, To be a part of a youth ministry team and a church to understand better what youth ministry looks like in the local context to support it. And so now we're actually, um, we're we're with 10 different organizations. So we have contracts with, with nine churches and a camp. I just got, we just got contracted by Green Bay Bible Camp, where my wife is the executive director, so please pray for us. I have no idea how this uh, next year is going to go as, as uh, we attempt to work together in close quarters. We tried it once, didn't work. I would hired her, so now she's hired me, and we'll give that a go, and so we're going to see just exactly how that goes, but we, uh, we feel, I feel incredibly privileged that my um, vocation, the work that I get to do, is about passing faith on to the next generation. Having said that, I believe the responsibility for passing faith on to the next generation is all of our responsibility. And there are some of us that are called to vocations of it, but all of us are called to the mission, correct? In fact, the reality is that um, I don't think that there is a more important calling to followers of Christ, and in particular, the local church, than passing faith on to the next generation. Because if we don't do it well, then we don't have a mission one generation from now, correct? Yeah. You know, we're doing a, we're, we are doing a new research project right now where uh, we're partnered, we're actually we're more partnered and distant on this project, but we're looking at faith in the home. How do we pass faith on within the home? And, um, and it's been fascinating to kind of hear the stories of how that work is taking place. And then out of that, we're now starting to, you know, we have a project with another church that we're working on where we're coming in and doing a seminar for parents of young adults in particular, and how do we help them continue to be faithful? And One of the questions we were asked the other day is we were asked, well, what about for us as parents who feel like maybe we've missed when our kids were children or adolescents, you know, and we've kind of lost the right to influence? What do we do now? And we just, you know, as we wrestled with it, and, and, and for me, you know, I've got uh, one boy who's 20 now and another boy who's 17, and so they're moving into that space. The, the first thing is to realize that we've never lost the opportunity to influence the next generation. In fact, all of the research that we've done tells us that the number one way that we actually pass faith on to the next generation is by modeling authentic faith. So that that ship has never sailed. And for some of us here, you know, as we dive into our sermon this morning, for some of us, we'll go, man, you know, there's some shame and some guilt because maybe we'll go, I'm not sure, at the most formative season of life, that that I was modeling the way that I really should have. You know, there's more work that needs to happen in my life. And I want to just say to those of us who are in that space, the journey is never finished. While we breathe, we still have opportunity. While we breathe, we still have mission. And so there's nothing more significant that we can do, no matter what the state of relationship, than by fighting to authentically serve Jesus ourselves and model that as best we can. And then I just want to say to... To some of you who are maybe wondering, you know, my, my kids have moved on and, um, and I'm not sure what it looks like to be a part of passing faith on to the next generation, I want to say to you that when I look at the role that, that my wife's parents play in our kids' lives, I mean, for them to have a legacy of generations of faith is powerful in forming their identity. And again, you know, don't underestimate the role that you have, especially when it comes to the next generation that way. And then for those of you who maybe don't have family in the space that you're in, um, this is is family. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus actually speaks more of the body of Christ as family than he does the nuclear family. And that the responsibility back in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, for passing faith on to the next generation was actually owned by the community, not simply the nuclear family. And so I just want to say to us that, you know, the mission is real. The mission is alive and we are called to it here. Now, this morning, you know, I was thinking about uh, this morning and, and, um, and thinking about, you know, we're looking at Luke chapter 5, 1 through 11. And this morning we're going to look at Jesus' call on Peter's life to come follow him. And we're asking the question. The question I want to answer is, how should we respond when, when Jesus calls us to follow him? And and as I was trying to figure out, how do I contextualize this into this space? This is the best I think I've got. I think, number one, for some of us here, maybe this morning, and for some of us online, we're kind of exploring what this whole Christianity thing looks like. And we know in the midst of the pandemic that there are more people that have never been in church that are exploring church, looking for better answers. I want to say thank you to you for having the courage to come and explore. And maybe this morning can just kind of uh, you know, create a better understanding of at the very foundation, what does it look like for us to follow hard after Jesus? What does it look like to hear God's call to come follow me and how does that work itself out a little bit? For those of us, that's the case. But for some of us, most of us probably who have like been you know, in faith or we've been a part of the faith community for a long time uh, what I found for myself as I read this was just kind of reminders kind of a reminder oh that's what it's supposed to be like Oh, I need to check myself again. Maybe I've kind of gotten into a pattern that doesn't really align in the way that God would have it to align. And I've kind of, there's a sense of maybe forgetting that first love just a little bit, forgetting the calling that I've actually committed to or am a part of. And I just think that times like these can be these wonderful moments where we just humbly follow the psalmist from Psalm 139, where he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting, you know? And that this is actually the way of followers of Christ, that we consistently just go, okay, God, hey, you know what, as I'm, as I'm rolling, as I'm living, if there's things that need to be cleaned up or dealt with or I need to be reminded of, I'm just open to your Spirit's work. And I just keep going, what a beautiful disposition that would be for us. What a wonderful, humble space. For us to be in. And and for me, that's what God kind of has called me into, you know, as, as I've been wrestling with this over the last week or so. You know, the series that we're doing here at Ellerslie is called Game Changer, right? And so I was thinking about what were kind of game changing moments? What have been some of the game changing moments in my life? You know, up to the up to this up to this time where I find myself right now, and and uh, and I think about you know I think about getting married. That was a game changing moment. You know, like I remember when when Jen and I got married. Now, funny thing about when Jen and I got married, we dated for a year, we broke up for four years, and then I was youth pastoring in Canmore, and we started getting back together again. And by getting back together, what I mean is we talked on the phone for like six months. And I didn't tell anybody that there was another person in my life while I was youth pastoring at my church in Camar. It was a church of 140 people, so everyone was pretty intimate. I just didn't let anyone know because Jen had gone through a, a, a pretty tough journey with where she'd been engaged to somebody and it broke off three times, and so that was fairly fresh, actually. And, and I wanted to stay focuses in my youth ministry but didn't know where this was going to go and I didn't want to get all of our students up. Didn't tell anybody that I was actually like connecting with someone and then we decided to get married and I announced to my church, oh, by the way, in three months, I'm getting married. That was a game-changing moment for our church, okay? It was like a major shift where everyone was like, do you even know a girl? And you know, like how's that, how's that working for you? So I remember that kind of, and I remember for me, I, you know, it was really fascinating because um, I remember after we got married, for the next like year, I've never felt more confusion in my whole life than I did in that year. Like I was just shocked. And I wasn't shocked so much at Jen. I was shocked at me because I'd never experienced my selfishness in a way that I experienced it in that space before. Because there was someone closer to me now than I'd ever had. I wasn't my own. I realized my life was no longer my own. It was an absolute game-changing experience for me. And, and it shifted me into a paradigm or way of living that was completely different than what I'd ever experienced before. I remember when we... Um, when we got pregnant with our first child, and by we I mean completely Jen, I was not pregnant at all, and uh, and I don't even know if I've told this story here before, but I remember the day when we discovered that Jen was pregnant. You know, I re- I remember that she'd been having morning sickness; that was a real thing. I remember coming to my wife and saying, babe, I think we should find out, you know, like if we're actually pregnant or not. And she's like, I don't want to find out because she knew it was a paradigm shift. And I'm like, well, whether you want to or not, I think we're going to find out. And then she was like, well, if you want to find out so bad, you go get the pregnancy checking stuff. And I was, that was like way out of the contract. I did not know that was part of the deal. But I remember going to the, to the pharmacy and getting like that device and walking up to the counter and in my head. I'm like, it's not for me, really, trust me and then I remember going home and and Jen you know going to the bathroom and then she came out and she starts to cry and I'm thinking oh my word this is not good and she goes into the bedroom and lies down on the bed and she's crying and I'm thinking to myself man I need to respond really well in this moment because this is going to have a significant effect on the next number of months of my life and so I lay down in the bed beside my wife as she's crying and I begin to feel her pain so I start kind of crying with her she's like oh I'm like oh it's just like a mess and then I remember just I remember the exact moment when my wife snaps out of the bed and she turns and looks at me and I'm like, uh-oh, got it wrong. And she hauls back with her fist and she drills me as hard as she can. She was like, boom. And then she looks me in the eye and she goes, I don't need you to cry. I need you to be a man. And that was the beginning of the worst nine months. That was, that was, like, that was it. You know, that was that, the game-changing moment. And I remember when we had Peyton and I remember just that sense of everything is now different. It's now different. And I got to tell you, if someone could have explained to me, you know, before we were in that moment, what the cost would be in our lives to raise our child in a healthy way, there's no way I would have been able to understand it and actually accept it. Because the cost is huge, right? For those of you who are parents, we know that. For those of you who are not parents, you have no idea. Trust me, you have no idea. You don't know. Don't try to tell me you know, because you don't. <laughs> One day you might, and then come talk to me. But I just, you know, it was just so amazing, because in a new way, my life wasn't my own. There was a constant presence that if I was not present and invested, that life was not going to be a whole life. The, the weight of responsibility was massive. I just remember it was such a game-changing moment. And then I remember how, you know, as you go on, you have these moments where you kind of pretend like life hasn't changed, that maybe it's still the old way, right? Like maybe I could do what I want. Maybe I could go buy the burgers if I want. Maybe I could hang out all night I want. But then we're really quickly reminded, but that's actually not the life we get anymore. And then for some of us who try to pretend that is still the life, this child becomes a terrible inconvenience as opposed to this new way of being that we're supposed to be. You know, I think as followers of Christ, you know, for some of us, like we've heard his call, we've accepted it, has been amazing, but we have these seasons where we try to pretend like, oh, wait, that's not, you know, uh, that's not my way of life. He doesn't actually play that role. Right. And then we get reminded, oh, wait a second, I'm actually called to be something different now. And for me, as I've gone through this passage, that's kind of the space I find myself in. Just this reminder, oh, right, there's something different that I'm called into. I'm no longer that way. I'm this. I need to realign myself. I need to kind of repurpose myself. And I want to say two things here. For those of us who are parents, we have to consistently and constantly repurpose ourselves. First, in terms of our relationship with Jesus, because how we purpose ourselves directly changes our kids' relationship with Jesus, too. we got to own that. We actually got to own that, so we should. But then for you, young, hey, listen, for those of you who are like teenagers here, young adults, you have to really take some time to go, hey, wait a second, this following of Jesus, like, is this my family's gig that I'm just hanging out with because that's the family I'm in, or is it mine? And when you hear Jesus speaking through his word this morning, this is for you to wrestle with. This is for you to come to grips with this idea, hey, am I in? How? What will be my response as Jesus comes to me and says, come follow me? What's my response going to look like? Okay, let's dive in. Luke chapter 5, 1 to 11. So here's the deal. Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee. It says Genesaret, but that's another word for Sea of Galilee or another title that often we give to the sea. And this is in the nation of Israel, of course. Jesus, is, his ministry is starting to take place. He's speaking to people by the edge of the sea, and then crowd gets real big. So he's like, whoa, crowd's big. Got to speak to the crowd. How am I going to get them to hear me? And he's like, if I can get out on the water, they're going to be able to hear me. So I need to get a boat, get on the water. So at Green Bay Bible Camp, we have our our fireside down by the beach. And every night we do chapel down at the beach. I know this principle of how sound carries across the water, right? Because it's like the most beautiful... Um, just wonderfully, wonderful space where you can be so aware of the presence of God in creation, unless there's a boat on the water, a surf boat with like 10, you know, teenagers on that surf boat partying. And even if they're three miles out, if they turn that surf boat so that the speakers face towards the shore, I now have like my own backing track, you know, my backtrack. Like I got a music backtracking over top of me while I'm preaching. And rarely is the theme of the song lining up with the theme of what. I'm preaching about like very rarely does that happen but we have that experience so here's what happens is Jesus is like got to get on the boat people can hear me so he goes to Simon Peter Simon Peter's a fisherman and actually you know Jesus has already been with Simon Peter so we know in the chapters before that he's he's actually healed he's been to Simon's home He's healed his mom when she was sick. So there's some relationship there. Otherwise, this doesn't really make any sense because Jesus comes to Simon Peter while they're cleaning their nets because they've been fishing all night, haven't caught anything, cleaning their nets. And he just says to them, hey, let's get in the boat, roll out so I can do some preaching. And apparently Peter's good with that. So they get in the boat, they head out on the water, Jesus begins to preach. And then when he's finished preaching, we find this take place. So let's jump in at verse three, Luke chapter five, verse three, getting into one of the boats which was Simon's. He asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon. So he does his teaching. He's finished his preaching. It's good. And then it gets real personal. And he just turns to Simon. He begins to speak to him. I think we could sit here this morning and position ourselves as a person in the crowd on the beach, hearing the talking, and just kind of like separating ourselves from the moment. But I think the way that Luke, the author of this passage, would want us to position ourselves would be in the position of Peter. I think what he'd want is he'd like this to get real personal real quick, right? At least that's what he did to me this week. I just felt like like Jesus was getting real personal real quick. And so Jesus turns to Peter and he says this. He says, Simon, put out into the deep And let your nets for a cat and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. So can you imagine Peter? He's in the boat, tired all night, they've already cleaned the nets. Jesus is doing his preaching, that's great. And then he turns to him suddenly, he says, Hey, why don't you take your nets, toss them out again? And if I'm Simon, I'm like, Jesus, stay in your lane. You're a carpenter. And you're doing this preaching gig on the side. You did a pretty cool thing for my mom. Appreciate it. I I roll with you. You're like, he uses the word master. You have some authority in my life in that way. But now you're talking fishing. This is what I do. I know fishing. And what I know about fishing is if you don't catch fish at night, you sure ain't catching it at day. That's not when you do fishing. Can you imagine? Stay in your lane. And Jesus turned, he said, hey, throw them out. But Peter, being much better than me, <laughs> even though there's this part of him that's saying, Master, come on, you don't get it. We toiled all night. We took nothing. But listen, I'll give you a shot. At your word, I'll let down the nets. At your word, I'll do it. So he does. He tosses the nets in. He goes for it. And then listen to what happens. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. It's like, are you kidding me? This thing just like blows up. More fish than they have ever had before. Boats are sinking. It's like it's, like it's on. If they weren't awake before, they're awake now. So they're in, they're trying to, and this is this is this happens. And then when it's kind of when the moment's over, it's interesting how Peter responds. In verse eight it says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and saying, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. You got to go. I can't be in your presence. You got to go. It's so fascinating to me that Peter was okay with Jesus being his master, giving some opinions, maybe having a bit of a role. But something fundamentally changed in his relationship with Jesus at that time. Suddenly, Jesus moved from simply being a master to all of a sudden, he realized he was the Lord. He realized that he was God. He realized that he was the king, that he was the creator of all creation, man. He realized that Jesus didn't simply know about fishing, he knew the fish. He didn't just know the fish, he commanded the fish. He owned the fish. He realized he was in the presence of God and it left him undone. Left him undone. He says, You got to get away from me, God. I can't even be in your presence anymore. Like, I don't measure up. You are in a completely different category than anything I've ever known. You know what's so fascinating to me? If you read the Old Testament, almost without exception, every single time someone comes near to God, it just destroys them. Right? Have you seen it? You take a look with Abraham, right? When God comes to Abraham, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. I'm nothing. This can't be happening. I'm nothing. Job, when Job actually met with God, when he finally saw God after all the suffering, listen to what he says. He said, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I am nothing. Isaiah, when God comes to him and calls him to this work, listen to what Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am nothing. When people actually get close to God, when they realize who Jesus is, one of the first responses is this understanding that we are unworthy. We are nothing. We're nothing. And that's so weird in our culture because everything in our culture tells us that we are God, that we're actually the God. We're the one that can do whatever we, whatever we want. We're in control of our own lives. We can be whatever we want to be and do whatever we want to do. But when we actually come into the presence of God, we realize it's not true. It's not who we are. Hey, are you? have you come into the presence of God, like, seriously? Like, have you really come into Jesus' space and come to grips with the reality of who he is and in light of who he is, who we are? Is there some dissonance in that space for you? Is it leaving you a little undone? Because if God is not leaving you a little undone, you're probably not meeting with the God of the Scriptures. At some point, he's got to leave us a little undone. I'm reading the Old Testament right now, and I'm like, man, there's some stuff about this God, this holiness, this justice, this strength and this power, that's just like, it's a, I'm wrestling with it. And I'm like, I'm not even sure how to relate to this or, or what I need to do with this. And the more that I'm doing this, I'm realizing that means I'm probably in an okay place. I'm actually probably wrestling with the, with, with the right God if I'm in that space because he is so much more than I am, than you are, than we are. He is holy, set apart, completely different. This is God. And Peter realized that. And he comes to God and he says, you got to depart from me because I don't measure up. I've realized now who you are and I don't measure up. But here's what's amazing about God. He doesn't listen to Peter. And he doesn't listen to you and I. Peter says, you've got to go. And God says, no, I'm going to stay. And not only am I going to stay, I'm going to actually go to the cross. I'm going to die for you. Not only am I going to die for you, then I'm going to transform and change you. And not only am I going to transform and change you, I'm going to bring you in and you're going to become mine. Not only will you be near, but you will be just in me. I will be in you and you will be in me and I will make you mine. I will change you. He says, Peter, you don't know it yet, but the gospel's coming. I am the gospel, and it will transform your life. And we see it with Peter, man. It's so interesting. In John chapter 21, after Christ has gone to the cross, Peter's denied him three times. If you're an in-house person here, you know what I'm talking about. When Jesus went to the cross, when the soldiers took him away, Peter, who was so committed to him, wasn't so committed to him, he denied him, created distance from him. Then he felt the shame and guilt of that. We all realize that because there's been many moments in all of our lives where we've created distance from God, tried to create our own space. We get it. And then Jesus raises from the dead, and we find him in John chapter 21, and Peter and his friends are out fishing again. They're going back to their own vocation, back to what they knew. They're fishing again, and it's the same scenario. They've been out all night. They haven't caught any fish, and here's this dude on the shore who's yelling at them, hey, throw your nets over on the other side. And I know what they're thinking. They're probably thinking in that moment, what do you know? Stay in your lane. We're fishermen. We get this stuff. But they listen, and when they do, it gets crazy. They get a catch of fish that just blows their mind. It rips their nets. It's going crazy. And as soon as that thing happens, as soon as that moment happens, Peter realizes wait a second, I've seen this before. I've seen it before. It's not a person who knows how to fish, that's a person who knows the fish. That's the it's Jesus, and what does He do? He doesn't yell, "Depart from me, get away!" No, because of the gospel, He says He wraps up His cloak and He jumps into the water and He rushes to Him, and that's you and me. Because of the gospel, we realize that there's a dissonance, but we don't have to run from Him. Because of the gospel and Christ's work, we come to Him, even though we're unworthy. We acknowledge we're unworthy. It's true, we're unworthy, but He is worthy. And he brings us to himself because of who he is, and we are his followers. First of all, we realize we're unworthy. The second thing that has to happen is we need to commit to his mission. It's fascinating to me when Peter says, depart from me, unworthy, Jesus doesn't say to him, oh, no, no, you're awesome, Peter. You're amazing. No, 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 no. Don't you're, Let's get your self-esteem up. You're the best thing ever. You're wonderful. Doesn't say that. Never says that. In fact, he says stupid things like, get behind me, Satan, when he talks to Peter. You know what I mean? Like, he just like, calls him out. He just calls him out. But you know what else he does? He doesn't reject him or push him away. He pulls him in. Why? Because he uses people who are unworthy. He does this all the time for his work and for his mission. The people who don't have what it takes, the people who are broken, the ones who acknowledge that reality, he's like, perfect, let's roll. Those are the people I use. And so he calls Peter into his mission Verse 9, he says, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And then in verse 10, And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. He says, Peter, I got a shift for you, man. This is the game changer. You're mine. And we're going to be about a mission that's going to be about changing the world. Like literally changing the world from here on out. We're about catching men. We're about not taking fish and using them for life. We're about bringing life to all people through the giver of life, Jesus Christ. They're like, this is the mission that you're on. And, and this is something new. Like I'm bringing you into something completely new, completely different. We're on mission. And this is the same for us too. God calls us to something completely different, something completely new. We are on mission. In fact, hey, like, as we read the scriptures, teenagers, high school students, college students, listen to me for a second. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, you have to know that you're on mission because you can't be a Christian without being on mission. There's no such thing... As being a follower of Christ and not being a part of his mission. I mean, that's just assumed in the scriptures all over the place. And there's journey to figure it out. There's journeys to try to understand what that means. I get that. That's okay. But I just want to be really clear right now that when Jesus calls us to follow him, he's calling us into a mission. And maybe one of the reasons why many of us aren't experiencing the presence of Jesus is because we're not in the mission. It's so interesting to me in the scriptures, almost without exception, when Jesus calls us to mission, he says, I'm going to go with you. And I think maybe the point is this, that it's in the going that we actually experience the intimacy of his presence, right? In Matthew chapter 28... This is like some of the last words that Jesus ever spoke. He says to his disciples and to those who would choose to follow him later, he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you till this is over. We're on mission. Now, for some of us when we grab that, maybe just a few, it's going to um, reshape what you think about vocation. It's going it's to call you into a different vocation. For some of you, that might be true. And that's not going to be an easy journey. I remember for me, when, when I felt like Jesus called me into mission, when I really owned that, when I was like 20 years old, for me, it was a shift in vocation. I was going to be a teacher Public school, that was my dream. My goal, got to have lots of followers of Christ in that space. I think it's so important. But I remember for me specifically, I felt Jesus calling me into something else. And I remember clearly how hard that was for my mom. It was so hard for her. I remember I said to her, mom, I'm leaving university. I'm going to go into full-time youth ministry. And just, she's like, how is this going to work? What are you going to be? She said, what will I tell my friends what you are? I said, mom, I have no idea what you're going to tell my friends. That's kind of not my issue. I probably should have been a little bit um, more respectful. That's on me. And then I remember she said to me, she said, how are you going to provide for your family? I said, mom, I don't know. Well, let's be honest. Here in North America, we provide for families just fine as being youth pastors. But I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know in the same way that my mom wanted. And I just remember the tension for her and the tension for myself. You know, we're in the midst of a research project right now where we're looking at faith in the homes. And one of the things that we've discovered as we've been interviewing families across Canada who come from evangelical environments, one of the interesting things that we've discovered is that for parents, oftentimes, their personal insecurities are what drive the direction they give to their children in terms of vocation and career. That's just generally what we've seen across the board, that the personal insecurities drive that direction. And one of the primary insecurities that we've been facing over the last little while within our country is financial security. Do we have it or not? And it's interesting to me how often we're finding as we're interviewing families is that that becomes a primary driver of where we want to direct our kids. Now, we should be good stewards of our resources. The scripture is clear that we should provide for others. We should make money so that we can provide for our families and give to others. 100%. I want to be really clear on that. But for some of us, it's been driving us away from perhaps directing our kids in some other areas that God might be calling them to as well. It was interesting when I heard this, because I know for my mom, that was such a struggle for her. And then I felt it myself when my son came to me this last year and said, hey, dad, I think I'm going into full-time ministry. And I remember just being in shock in the moment. (laughs) Wait a second. First thought through my mind. Hey, how are you going to provide for your family properly? How are you going to put away for retirement? What that's going to look like for you? Where's that security going to come from? And I remember it became my own insecurity that started to drive the way I was trying to direct my son. I remember I said to him, stay out of it as long as you can, kiddo. If you can't stay out of it anymore, then go for it. Absolutely. But this is what, like, when when God calls us, it's changing the purpose of life. And for some of us, it might actually change vocation. Not for many of us, not for all of us. But what will change for all of us is what our purpose is in our vocation. That it should change for every single one of us. All of the sudden, our vocation, our positions simply become environments that God is calling us to live out His kingdom values for the good of all people and for the glory of Jesus Christ. That is the reality. That whatever vocation we find ourselves in, if we are a follower of Christ, then that simply becomes a space that God is calling us to live out our mission. And I guess the question I'm asking myself these days, like I am for everyone else, is okay... What's my purpose in my vocation? And even when we're within a space, like being a pastor, that's still the question we have to ask ourselves because there's so many other distractions that can happen in the midst of the space. But as followers of Christ, if we're really about Jesus, then we realize whatever the vocation is, we've got a mission to love God and love others. That's actually our call. And invite people into this journey of life that Christ is calling us to be a part of. This is our mission. This is what we're called to. When Jesus calls, then this is the response. Okay, I'm in on mission. So first, we realize we're unworthy. Second, we realize that we are called to a mission. There's no such thing as being a Christian without mission. And then third, we are called to make him our treasure. Okay, where do we see that? Here's where we see it. Verse 10, he says this. And Jesus said to, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And then in verse 11, he says this, or it says this, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Do you hear that? When they brought the boats to land, just after, by the way, they've had the greatest success they'd ever experienced in their vocation. I mean, the windfall was huge, man. Like they were in the money. If this was how this was going to go, we're good. And in that moment, when they were kind of at the pinnacle, they left it all and said, okay, we're in. Let's roll. How do you do that? How do you leave it all and just pursue this life that has so many unknowns in it? I mean, not how do you go home and tell your spouse, eh, vocation changed. What are you doing? Not sure. Uh, but following him. Oh, oh, great. Where's the food coming from tomorrow? Hey, not sure. We got a really good catch. Should last us about a month. I think that's good. After that, don't really know. Um, but, but this is, you know, this, and this was them. How, how do you get there? Here's how I think you get there. How do you leave everything else at risk? How do you live in the uncertainty? I think the way you do that is when, when you realize that the one you're following is greater than everything else you're leaving behind. I think it's the only way when you're absolutely convinced that that the one you're following that Jesus Christ is an infinitely greater treasure than all the other treasures that you're potentially leaving behind or at least holding with an open hand i think it's the only way in you know it's interesting i'm reading i read matthew 13 verse 44 parable of the hidden treasure. Jesus is talking about what it means to follow him, right? This is him. He's saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and he buys that field. He says, he just gets rid of everything. And then he invests fully in this field where the treasure is. Okay. I just remember thinking when I heard, I go, what if Jesus actually called me to go and sell everything to go? Because I actually have a, we have a, you know, earthly standards actually have a pretty good life. I was like, what would that be like? That would be so hard. How could this person do this? How could they go and sell everything? That would be so hard. Apparently not so hard for this person because listen to what it says. It says in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. How does he do this in his joy? Oh, because he realized what he was purchasing was infinitely greater than anything he had to sell. He saw that Jesus was his treasure. Hey, I just don't think we can really follow Jesus the way he's calling us to follow him unless we treasure him the way that, that we need to treasure him. You know what I mean? I don't think it's possible because there's just like, there's, there's too much at risk. I mean, I mean, when we start following according to his values, at some point it's going to clash with the values of our culture. At some point it's going to happen. At some point, we're going to be more about giving away than we are getting. At some point, we're going to be more about standing for truth than we are about compromising and, and comfort. Like at some point, it's just going to clash, you know? It's interesting because Jesus says, you know, he says, if you want to follow me more than anything else in the scriptures, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. More than anything else. He says, be willing to suffer. Lots, come follow me. That's what this is actually about. More than anything else. At one point, he says, you should act as if you hate your life. That's how it should be. And I'm like, what does that mean? Act as if we hate our life. Here's what I think it means. It means our values become so different than the world's values that we start making decisions and the world looks at us and they say, why would you make that decision? Do you hate your life? And we go, well... If I valued the same things that you value, yes, it would look like I hate my life, but I don't actually value those things. I actually value Jesus infinitely more than any of those things, and I love a lot of those things. I love the the security. I'm thankful for the finances. These are all really good things, but in and of themselves, they don't own me anymore. Jesus does, and I value him infinitely more than anything, and he told me to do this, so I'm good. I'm really good. And when people go that way, their presence begins to reshape the communities around them. Those are the people that culture starts looking at and going, okay, when you had everything and I had everything and you were happy and I was happy, I was fine with what you were doing. But you just lost everything I think is great and you're still okay. Tears are real, but you're still okay. I need to understand what that is because that's different. And ultimately what it is is we treasure Jesus. We've seen the beauty of Jesus and we realize nothing compares. So we're thankful for all that we have. We're super thankful, but it doesn't own us anymore. We hold it with an open hand. We say, Jesus, whatever you want, I'm in. You know, uh, uh, and I'm not quite even sure how to like, articulate this properly, but I'm wrestling with this one with my boys. I'm not, so I'm wrestling with it. When I want my kids to follow Jesus well, I'm starting to realize that the number one issue isn't what they do, it's actually what they see. The number one issue isn't what they do, it's what they see. Because if they could really see Jesus for who he actually is, I think all the doing stuff would just fall in its place, no problem. So I think the fight of faith is primarily a fight to see. And what I'm realizing is that when my boys are trying to figure out Jesus and see what effects he has, the place that they're looking most closely is me. And so I'm wrestling with that. And so I'm just saying, hey, do we treasure Jesus, you know? Or are we at least fighting to treasure Jesus? And we know there's dissonance. We realize there's struggle, and there's times we feel unworthy. We can't figure God out because He's so holy and He's so powerful, but that's okay. We wrestle through that. We know there's this call to mission. And sometimes we're in the midst of our vocation and we're just on the grind, nine to five, getting it done, and we forget, but then we remember, we go, okay, Lord, there's purpose in that moment and in that place. This place or this position no longer defines me. It's simply an environment where I have the opportunity to live out who I actually am. I say this to my boy all the time. Basketball is not who you are. It's simply an activity that you do in a place where you have the opportunity to live out who you are, which is a follower of Jesus. So use it well. Use it well. And when it disappears and when it reveals how fragile it actually is because it's super fragile, you're still okay because your identity is intact. What changes the, the, is the environment you live it out. So let's figure it out because you're on mission, son. We fight to be on mission. and But then ultimately, we have to fight to treasure Jesus. We have to fight to see the beauty of who he is in his word, through prayer, in community. We fight to see his beauty. And when we truly see who he is, it changes everything. It transforms us. It changes us. And we begin to be a people who start shaping the community around us. So a few questions just to end. As I was wrestling with this this week, these were the questions that I started kind of asking myself. The first question was this is, hey, is there something about God that's disturbing me? I was like, man, yeah, I'm reading through the scriptures and I'm trying to understand it. And I just want to say to you, for those of you who are finding God a little disturbing, it's okay. You're probably in an okay space. That's the right thing. For some of you, or maybe you're exploring and you're like, whoa, this is really hard. That's okay. You're on a good journey. It should, it should. It should rub you. You should wrestle with it. It's okay. Is there something about God that's disturbing you? It's okay. I've said this before, that we should never be surprised if Jesus offends our cultural sensibilities. Why? Because our culture didn't create Jesus. At some point, he will offend every cultural sensibility because he's calling us to a completely different culture, his culture, okay? Second question then is, is, are we on mission? How do we see our vocation? What's the purpose of what we're doing? There's actually no such thing as insignificant moments or places. Each place that Jesus calls his followers is holy ground, whether it's Starbucks or whether it's the church, same, same because we're on mission. This is who we are. We're missionaries. That's God's call on our lives. That's what it means to be his follower. So are we leaning into that mission? Are we wrestling with what it looks like to live out that mission? And it looks really different now than it did 20 years ago. Everything's changing in our society, and our culture, and the values. So there's new ways that God's calling us to do mission. In some ways, it's harder. Some ways, it's easier. Doesn't matter. We're on mission. We're aliens and strangers here. We don't belong. We belong to a different world. So we shouldn't be surprised when things kind of rub on us wrong within our culture. We're on mission. That's the reality. And then finally, is Christ our treasure? Is he really our treasure? Are we fighting with this idea of what it means to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and strength? And it's not perfect on this side of eternity. There's this journey that we're on and in the midst of our perfections, Jesus continues to use us and reshape us. We love the grace. We love the gospel. But are we leaning in? Are we fighting to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and actually make him our treasure? Father, I love you and I thank you for who you are. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who would be fighting to follow you well, who would respond well to your calling, like Peter did, not perfectly well, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would lead us, Lord, that we would wrestle with what it means to, to, you know, to, to be disturbed by your presence and who you are and your calling and to work through that, what it means to actually be on mission, whatever our space, what it means to treasure you. And, and, and it sounds so simplistic, but it's not. I know that. So I ask that your spirit would lead us, Father. And I thank you for your patience and your grace. I ask that you would continue to do a good work. I pray this for your glory for our joy and for the good of all people. In your name, amen.